0: Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. This morning, turn in your Bibles to Ezra, Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4. Uh, this morning's message is kind of a, a pastoral message, if you will. Um, you know, uh, not everybody likes you. Have you, have you learned that? And, um, and the sooner, it's almost like the sooner we come to grips with that, uh, the, then the sooner we can begin to have some wisdom with that and be able to handle that in a way that's good, healthy, whole. Um, and so... This morning we're gonna. Uh, this morning's part three. We've been in this series of study. We've been looking at this Old Testament book of Ezra, and we come to Ezra chapter four. Um, yeah, Lord, we just need your help today. So, a number of years ago, a bunch of years ago, my sweetie and I, we were leading a, a youth retreat, and you know how you learn some things by experience. And you say, Oh, I'll never do that again. And well, this was one of those. So we were young and we were leading this youth retreat. We were having a great time. We had a campfire and we were just and we were making mountain pies in the campfire. And I don't know, maybe they I know they go by different names, but a mountain pie is that thing where you got this like iron tool and you butter one piece of bread, put it here, you butter another piece of bread, you put it there, and you put whatever filling you want in it and you clamp it tight and you cook it in the fire and it is delicious. And so we're just having a great old time eating our mountain pies. And um, unbeknownst to us, we're poisoning ourselves because there was a pile of scrap lumber that I thought it would be great to use in the fire. It's nice and dry, but it was treated lumber. And I had no idea. I know now. (laughs) I know now. But I had no idea at the time, you know, you burn that, it like sends off chemicals and really bad stuff. So here we are, we're eating this, you know, we're enjoying this great fire, and we're eating delicious mountain pies, and we're having a great time together, good time, fellowship, singing, all that stuff around the campfire, and we're poisoning ourselves. We have this unseen enemy in the midst that is actually working against us. Us. And oh man, we were just, I mean, I, I, I don't know that I've ever been that sick. It, w- it was really, really bad. <laughs> a very memorable youth retreat, you know, it was good times. The same is true for you and me. There's an unseen enemy. And it's the one you don't see, that's, that's the one you got to worry about. We can be having a good time, enjoying the fire, enjoying the mountain pie, enjoying the fellowship, and all the while, be undermined and attacked and brought to our end by an enemy. You know, the Bible calls us sheep. So if you don't know who the wolves are, you're going to get eaten. And in a sense, this message this morning is really designed, I I think, pastorally to sort of protect us, if you will. Um. It's hard, to, it's hard to believe, like, why would anybody want to come against God's people? And I know we kind of live this little innocent, naive way, because we think with all of the good, with all of the good that God's people do in the world, like, why would anybody want to oppose us? You, you, you think about the, the, the many, I mean, how many? Just thousands, tens, hundreds, millions probably, missionaries who have given their very lives to go to the strangest and most remotest parts of the world to bring the hope of God to those places and serve those people. You think about the countless hospitals around the world who serve people, millions of people every year, hospitals supported, funded, paid for by Christian organizations, and you think about the countless, like boys' homes and girls' homes and adoption agencies and inner city uh, rec centers and counseling centers and medical clinics and dental clinics and all of them run by Christians, paid for, funded by God's people. When you think about, like, and that's not even to mention just the incalculable contribution of local churches, little local churches, just like ours, serving faithfully in their communities all around the world, caring for their neighbors, loving their neighbors, serving their neighbors. God's people are some of the most, if not the most, generous people on this planet, It's not an exaggeration. So I know it's shocking when you think, why, given all of the good that God's people do, why would it be opposed? Huh? It almost makes you think that this is real. That there actually is a devil who's working against what God's seeking to do. The opposition, right? And so, friends, we've got to be aware of our enemies and our friends. You know, there are friends and there are enemies. There are not frenemies. That's the stuff made up in chick flicks and sitcoms. But that's not reality. And if we don't identify the difference, we'll get eaten up. We need to identify the difference because it that informs how it is that we relate to them. You see, we're called, we're commanded in Scripture to love our enemies, but we don't trust them. And I know this is not a very politically correct message, but hear my heart. I hope you hear it. We need to be eyes wide open as we engage this spiritual warfare in our world does this make sense I love my enemies but I dare not trust them and so you know even Jesus said even Jesus said you do not cast your pearls before swine so I need to know who's a pig and who isn't I know that's really not a politically correct statement you notice Jesus, I don't think he was very, anyway, the point is we need to know who they are because it informs how we relate to them. And that's what brings us next into our study in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 4, So the reason why we're studying Ezra is because there are some similarities between Ezra and their situation and our own situation. The the people in Ezra's day, they were beleaguered, they were beat up. They they were coming back from 70 years of exile. And we've kind of noted that for us, it feels a lot like we're coming out of exile as well. And a lot of things have changed. I mean, I never, in my, you know, this You know, I grew up going to church. You're like, 54 years, wow. Like, church is completely, seems to be changing how it gets done. Have you noticed that? I mean, just so many things. And so there's a lot of similarities, and we're trying to learn from the experience of the people in Ezra and apply that to our own experience as we rebuild church and ministry and life. And, And we noted that the people in Ezra's day, they... They were coming out of 70 years of exile. They're led by this guy whose name is Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel wasn't a governor per se, but he just, I guess, was the designated leader of this, of this beat-up little group of exiles who find their way back to Jerusalem. And they're given the job of having to rebuild this city. But, but they're not just rebuilding the city. The reason why we're focused on Ezra is because Ezra focuses on how the heart of the people were rebuilt. A lot of people like the story of Nehemiah, and Ezra and Nehemiah go together in the Bible. In matter of fact, uh, they used to be the same book, Ezra and Nehemiah. And so you got those two, there. But we, and we like Nehemiah, but Nehemiah focuses on the building of the actual city walls, the physical walls. Ezra tends to focus more on the rebuilding of the heart of the people. Ezra was a priest. Nehemiah is a builder. And so we've been In the book of Ezra, kind of talking about getting the heart back in our ministry. Rebuilding this from the inside out. And we noted that that the first thing that Zerubbabel and the people did was they built an altar. Job one. And they built an altar for prayer and for worship. They, they They got connected with God in prayer. And we've said prayer is primary. That's our first stop. We need to learn how to abide in Christ... And then everything we do flows out of that. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And so if we abide in Christ, then it's his fruit that comes out, not our own. And, and we've repented from that. We've noted that in the past that we've gone off and we've, we've, we've worked for Jesus, but we really haven't worked with Jesus. And so that's step one. He built the altar for prayer, for worship. Step two, we talked about it last Sunday. They rebuilt the temple. They started to rebuild the temple. They only made it as far as the foundation. But they were going to rebuild the temple. And the reason why they rebuilt the temple was because the temple was the place where it provided the structure for people to grow in their relationship with God. That's where that all happened for them. And, and we noted last week that, like, your walk with Jesus, it's not magical. You don't just say a prayer and then, now I'm just like Jesus. You know, your salvation is free. We said that. Jesus paid for it, right? He paid for your salvation. Thank God. My my, my ticket to heaven has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ for you and for me. If you call on the name of Jesus, you'll be saved. He forgives you of your sins, He makes you right. That's awesome. I paid nothing for that. It's a free gift. But if I want to be just like Jesus, that's going to cost everything I have. That's going to take work. That's going to take discipline. That's going to take a plan. And we noted that last week, that we need to develop a solid plan so that we can get on the path for developing a a biblical worldview, a a Christ-like perspective on life. We've got to be rooted and grounded in Christ, like this is going to take some work. And so that's part two. And now this morning, you come to Ezra chapter 4, and enemies oppose this. Again, it's surprising. It catches us by surprise. Why would anybody oppose your desire to follow God? And yet they do. So here we come, Ezra chapter 4. This is is how it works. Let's start with verse 1. So, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard That the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. They came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families. And they said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God. And and we've been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel, they answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building, they bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let's just keep on going a little bit. Verse 6, at the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 7, and in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabael... I probably said those wrong, forgive me. And the rest of their associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in Aramaic language. And then the rest of the chapter outlines the correspondence, and then chapter 4 ends with this rather sad conclusion. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Wow. Now, I got to admit, when I first read this, first started digging into this, I got a little mad at Zerubbabel. Did you see it that way? Because I'm reading this, and I'm like, Z, what's up with that? Like, these people wanted to help you. They offered to help you, Zerubbabel. And you turned them down you rejected their desire to help Z no wonder they're your enemies no wonder they started coming against you is that how you read it that's how I read it I admit that's how I saw it for the first time until went back to the first three words of verse 1 and it says when the enemies See, why did Zerubbabel turn down their offer to help? They were enemies. There you go. (laughs) See? Ah. So Zerubbabel actually knew who his enemies and his friends were, and he identified it. Notice Now notice something. Notice that Zerubbabel treated them with respect. You see that? He he did not attack them. He did not... um, he maligned their character he, he didn't say anything negative about them he simply did what you're supposed to do with an enemy he denied them access That's what he did you know the bible it, it tells us that if your enemy is hungry or thirsty that you're supposed to feed them you're supposed to serve them but you don't let them into the kitchen See, we don't, we, you deny that, you don't trust them. We serve, we're called to serve, to love, to give, to pray for, all of that. Treat with respect, all of that. But there's always got to be this little line that we do not allow them to cross. You don't give them access. You don't trust them. You don't give them the trade secrets, if you will. You don't. There's just things you do with an enemy that you don't do with a friend. And by identifying the two, then you can. It, it informs how you relate to them. Now, these enemies of Judah, these enemies of Zerubbabel, they began in response to their true colors came out, and they began to. Uh, Come against them. And the rest of the chapter outlines that. Now, for the sake of just you gotta for the sake of our study, you need to understand that these attacks did not all happen at one shot. In fact, they they came over a period of about 16 years, if you do the math. And it came through the time span of three different Persian kings. They're mentioned here. And so you, you see it's not just one time, it's kind of this constant undercurrent kind of like the waves of the sea just eroding the sand on the seashore little by little that's kind of the attack and how it happened and we see that it comes in four different forms let me just let me just highlight them and then we'll go back and look at them more specifically but you see verse four the first attack was intimidation and then verse five the second attack was infiltration that's my word trying to make them rhyme so intimidation, infiltration. And then you come to verse 6, and it's a verbal accusation. And then verses 7 through 23, it's a written accusation. So at least four different attacks on Zerubbabel and the people over the course of 16 years through the reign of three different kings, and it all resulted in verse 24. They stopped their progression. They stopped moving forward. It worked. In other words, it worked, sadly. The enemy's attack worked. Let's look at the first attack, verse 1. The enemy came at them with intimidation. Verse 4, it says that they, were, that they worked to discourage the people and to make them afraid. You'll never do it. What are you doing? I mean, who do you think you are? You you really think you're gonna make a difference in this world? <laughs> Come on. Discourage, distract, fear, intimidate. It's the, it's the message you and I hear in, in, in our ears every single day. Who do you think you are? You've got so much work to do. Why even bother starting? You're not gonna get there. You heard that voice? I hear it in my ears almost every single day. And as you turn on the news, you see it get worse and worse and worse. You think, why even bother trying? Don't even go, don't even start. Fear, intimidation. When that doesn't work, the enemy continues and does infiltration. See what happens in verse five? They bribed officials to work against them. So like they paid off some of Zerubbabel's own guys, to to do an inside job against their own people. And we don't know what it was that they did, but boy, that can be a very difficult one, can't it? A wolf in sheep's clothing, so to speak. It can be really hard to see that one because these are your guys, and they're working to frustrate the plans from the inside. And, and we don't know what form it takes. Maybe it's criticism. Maybe it's just, you know, negative Nancy, pessimistic Peter. Who, who knows? I don't know. I know this, though. There's a difference between constructive criticism and destructive criticism, and we probably want to know the difference. Your friends offer constructive criticism. Your enemies offer destructive criticism, whether it's coming from the inside or the outside, Constructive criticism says this, hey, what can we do to accomplish our goal better? That's constructive. We are on this team. We have a goal. What can we do to accomplish our goal better? You see how that's constructive? we're talking we can talk honestly about where our where our faults are, where our weaknesses are. You know, we can do that because we're on the same team and we're we're following the same playbook and we've got the same goal. Destructive criticism attacks your character. You are lazy. You don't care. You're not loving. You are failing. You're doing this wrong. Destructive criticism is the person who, you know, they're like the, they're like the, the, the perpetual uh, consultant, you know. Here's all the things you're doing wrong, and you need to fix it. There's a lot of um, destructive criticism happening these days. A lot of people throwing rocks. Oh boy, I pray it stops soon but I got a feeling it's not. So God's people, we need to get ready. We need to understand who our enemies are, who our friends are, so that we don't get sidetracked from the mission that God's calling us to fulfill. And just know, there's always gonna be haters. (laughs) Always. So criticism, infiltration. When the infiltration doesn't work, Verse 6, at the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation. It's a verbal accusation, which is just, I guess, another way to keep, just keep at the attack. Here's all the things you're doing wrong. Oh, king, you, won't, you don't believe these people. These people are, these people, they're, they don't got the right motives, king. These guys are, they're, they're evil, they're wicked, they're this, they're that. And then when the verbal accusation, you know, what do you do? I'll put it this way. Have you ever noticed that when somebody accuses you verbally that defending yourself doesn't work? Have you ever noticed that? Like that's what makes verbal accusation so difficult because it's almost like the guy that gives it first is the winner, if you will. Because the first person to launch the accusation, now that puts you in the defensive mode. And if you defend yourself, you just look more guilty. If you defend yourself, you look desperate. So you go, well, that doesn't sound like a very good experience. How do I get out of that? Like, how do I stop that when I'm being accused, even accused falsely, How do I get out of that? You know, Um, honestly, as a follower of Jesus Christ, the best way to do it is to rest and fall back in God and the fact that he defends you, and he will make it right. You know, there's a reason why Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, because have you seen the size of your God? God. and your enemy is God's enemy. God takes that very seriously. You're his guy, you're his girl. Someone coming against you is actually opposing the God of the universe. And that's why Jesus goes, hey, you better pray for your enemies because they're not sitting too good right now. You with me? I love uh, Isaiah or Psalms chapter 50. Psalms chapter 50, verses 16 to 21. You know, we've been kind of going back and forth in the Psalms in our study in Ezra because a lot of the Psalms were written during this time period. And we don't know for sure, but this Psalm, this Psalm really sort of expresses this a little bit. In Psalms chapter 50, you know, I can't complain to somebody else about the accusations that I'm getting hit with because that just makes me look bad. It doesn't win. So where do I go? I take it to the Lord. And in Psalms 50, the psalmist here, he takes it to the Lord. And he's like, but to the wicked person, he goes, God says, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander your own mother's son. There's an inside job. He says, when you did these things, and and remember, perspective, this is God speaking to this person, to the wicked. And God says, when you did these things, I kept silent. You thought I was exactly like you, but now I arraign you and I set my accusations before you. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. That's the response of your God towards your enemies. We fall back, we rest in knowing that God has My back, I fall into the hands of God. Oh, it's not an easy answer, friend. I know, I know. it. Oh, believe me, my own flesh wants to fight back. Are you kidding me? How many times, right? Do you not want to just start going off on Facebook? I mean, come on. We know that's the natural tendency. We've got to resist that. We fall back into the hands of God. I rest, I pray for that person, because baby, you're coming against my dad, and you see how big my dad is? He's coming after you. And so I'm just gonna fall back and wait and rest in him. I love, uh, I love the Psalms. Do you know that um, there were actually, so? and I, we're not gonna read them all, but do you know there were actually 10 different Psalms, 10 different Psalms that were written during this exact time period in Israel's history? and and it's super cool. I would encourage you to look them up. They're on the screen behind me. They're on the screen on your TV to write them down, look them up later. But here's what you here's what you want to look for when you're now you realize they're expressed in poetic language. So it's not, you know, direct, it's poetic. So it's somewhat flowery, but if you if you look at them, look look at notice the references to the destruction of the temple. Notice the references to the foundation of the temple, which, remember, at this point, that's all they had. Remember, Zerubbabel and the people, they built the foundation, and then the enemies come after them. So there's references to just this foundation... And then the references then to the people and their response going, Oh, God, come on, you got to protect us, God. They're they're calling out to God, and they're falling on God's mercy. These ten psalms were all written during this time period. It's super cool to get a a look at them. But let me just give you, here's Psalm 74. Here's a little snippet, Psalm 74. It says says this. He says, um, the psalmist writes, he goes, Oh, God. Why have you rejected us forever? You ever feel like that? When when your enemies are coming against you, you want God in the worst way to just like immediately do something, and then he doesn't, and you feel like God's rejected you. I've been there. Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Verse 2, remember the nation that you purchased long ago, God? Do you remember them? Us. Verse 3, Turn your steps toward these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. God, you you see what they're doing. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes. They smashed all the carved paneling. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. This is verse 7. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. Oh, God. God. And he goes on, he reads, and, and you come to verse 22, he ends with saying, rise up, O God. Rise up and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. You see, what you see in the psalm is you see this. You see how God's people understand and believe in and count on the fact that God takes their enemy, he takes our enemies personally. Your enemy is God's enemy. There's a direct connect. And you read these psalms, it puts voice. I love the psalms because how else do I pray? I don't even know how to pray when I'm feeling like this. But the psalms kind of put words to it, and they help. And I I would encourage you, if you're feeling beat up, turn to some of these psalms, these 10 psalms in particular, and just read them out loud. Read them as prayers, like don't, don't just read them, pray them, and you'll find that God will fill you with his peace. And so the verbal attack gets ramped up, and the fourth and final attack was a written attack. Accusation and we see that in verse seven through twenty three you see the whole correspondence and in this written correspondence that they bring where they 're bringing an accusation against god 's people they're they 're attempting to paint the entire history of the Jews in a negative light and you come and you see in verse uh, you see in verse fifteen In verse 15, um, they tell him, hey, king, uh, you want to do a search, and you'll see uh, that this city is a rebellious, troublesome city. You know, they say that a couple of times in their letter. You'll see, God, that this city has been nothing but bad news from the beginning. You'll, You'll see it. This is the written accusation of the enemy towards God's people. They attempt to paint the entire history of the Jews in a negative light. And at this point, Jewish history, if you go back to Abraham, maybe a thousand years, give or take. So they attempt to paint a thousand year history with one very negative broad brush. You're just a rebellious, seditious, ornery people. And so, of course, King Artaxerxes, you're going to want to do something about these people. You see what they're doing? See? Friends, the reason why your enemy does that, the reason why your enemy attempts to paint your history in one broad negative brush is because they can't afford to give you any kudos. Because if they do, it weakens their case. But you understand that it's not all negative. You get that, right? Like, it's, it's appropriate to say, hey, mistakes have been made, but do you see the good? Do you see the good? Because that's the truth, that's the reality. And so when the written accusation began to come against the people of God, like I said, verse 24 says, they stopped building. It took effect. The people were discouraged. The people were demoralized. And they left their foundation slab on the ground. And if you do the math, it took about 16 years. For then for the next 16 years, nothing happened. They stayed like that for 16 years. Kind of depressed, puttering along until the prophet Haggai began to really stir them up. And we noticed this, we've been noting this as well, that there were two preachers during this time period that were preaching at the people and really encouraging them with the word of God to keep going. And you have Haggai and you have Zechariah. And it's super cool when you overlay Haggai and Zechariah with Ezra and Nehemiah, because you know it makes perfect sense they 're preaching you, you get the context of their sermons, and so you go to Zechariah chapter eight now we don 't know for sure i, I don 't know one hundred percent for sure if Zechariah eight was the literal sermon that Zechariah preached, but it certainly could have been okay so we'll we 'll give it that uh, just to be uh, intellectually honest with it. It certainly could have been the sermon that Zechariah preached to them as they looked at their empty slab foundation and no building, as they were getting demoralized, pummeled by their enemies. I mean, it it could have been that Zechariah preached this word to them. Zechariah chapter eight. Look at this. Oh, it's so encouraging. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. And you're gonna have to look it up. I, I don't have it on the screen, but Zechariah chapter eight. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. Do you hear the heart of God? Your enemies are are hating on you, hating on you, and the Lord of the universe says, I am jealous for you, I, I am your God. Verse three, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. Now remember, What do they have at this point? Nothing but a slab and a bunch of rubble. So, this is a hopeful future. It's a vision of what God is going to do. Can you see it? Beat up saints, can you see where God's going? Verse six this is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time. Yes, it does, Lord. I have a hard time picturing it, I admit. But the Lord says, But will it be marvelous to me, (laughs) declares the Lord Almighty? Of course not. Verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the East and the West. I'll bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people. I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now hear these words. Let your hands be strong so that the temple may be built. You can see Zechariah you know, he's, come on, you guys, let your hands be strong. Keep building. This is what the Lord, this is what the prophets said when we were present, when the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord Almighty. Before that time, there were no wages for people or hire for animals. No one could go about their business safely because of their enemies, since I had turned everyone against their neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as I did in the past, declares the Lord Almighty. The seed will grow well, the vine will yield its fruit, the ground will produce its crops, and the heavens will drop their dew. Does this sound familiar? We we didn't read this exactly, but last week we read the words of Haggai, and Haggai preached the same thing. Remember, and so Zechariah, is, you know, they're kind of piggybacking on each other's sermons. He says, "This just as you, Judah and Israel, have been a curse among the nations, so I will save you, and you'll be a blessing. Don't be afraid, but let your hands be strong." This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and show no pity when your ancestors angered me, so now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you do. Speak the truth to each other. Render true and sound judgment in your courts. Don't plot evil against each other. Do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fast of the fourth, fifth, seventh, tenth months will become joyful, glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, hey, let's go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. And I love this last part. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, in those days, 10 people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe, and say, let us go with you, because we have heard that God's with you. Now there's a picture of a glorious future. Can you see it? This beleaguered group of people with nothing but a slab of rock in the middle of rubble, being beat up by their enemies, discouraged at every turn. And the prophet is speaking to them, God speaking to them through the prophet Zechariah, giving them the hope of their future. Letting them know, you know what? Right now, you got you got haters dogging you, but the day is going to come when 10 people, 10 people are going to grab a hold of every one of the hem, every one of your guys's ankles and say, "Hey, take me to your God. I heard he's really awesome." See see the thing is this, If you and I handle our enemies right, they see God in us. That's huge. And when they see God in us, they say, I don't know a God like that. Because you're operating in a different power, a different way of behaving than I have ever thought or seen before. I want to know this God that you are clinging to. It reminds me a number of years ago, there was a a good friend of mine who was going through a just a really nasty divorce, and uh, you know, you can imagine. Think the nastiest divorce, and this was that. And um, and obviously, there aren't there's uh, there's never two perfectly innocent people in any of these kind of conflicts, Um, but he was definitely trying to do his best you know and uh, eventually the whole thing came out she was having multiple affairs and she was stealing money and it was a big wreck it was a big big mess and over the course of about a year and a half this guy would come to me he was a guy that i'd been discipling and i actually had led him to jesus and you know so we were walking together in this and this guy come to me and he was so he'd be so mad He, as you can imagine, you know, the latest attack, the latest thing, the latest call from the lawyer, I mean, and he would just send him right off, and he would be coming to me wanting to spit nails, and ah, he was so mad. And the Lord gave us this word during that time as he and I were praying together and seeking God together, and the word was, your righteousness will shine like the noonday sun. And we kept saying, okay, buddy. I kept encouraging him. Every time he'd come at me, all mad, all ready to do something rash, they like, listen, listen, listen. Your integrity, your integrity, you do what God is telling you to do. You honor the Lord, and he will settle all this out. And she's going to do what she's doing, but you honor the Lord. You got to sleep with yourself at night, right? This is your choice. And he did that. I mean, it was hard. Like I said, it went for about a year and a half. You know, these things aren't short. And, and so a tough, tough time. But, you know, at the end, that's exactly what happened. His business was saved. He owned a business. His business was saved. All of the stuff that she had been doing kind of came out. His own his own righteousness, you know, his own, his own integrity was maintained. And Ended up getting custody of the kids and the whole, I mean, it's still sad, but I'm just saying for him, God stood by his guy. That's the deal. God stood by his guy because his guy was trying to do it the right way, wanted to honor the Lord in what he was doing. And and the Lord honored him. And the same is true for you and me. You know, I mean, there are people who oppose and, and of course our natural reaction is to defend ourselves of course that's our that's what my flesh wants to do wants to rise right up and but that's actually not the way of God he wants us to fall back on him fall back on his mercy and if you got to complain to somebody complain to the lord if you got to cuss and yell and you know spew murderous words <laughs> do it in prayer <laughs> don't don't do it with anybody else <laughs> They'll call the cops. You got to do it in prayer. You got to take that to the Lord, right? You fall back on him. And you trust that as you behave with integrity, that God will back you up. So we come to kind of summary. You know, the summary is is this. I mean, we're going to have people that oppose us. That's a fact of life. We need to recognize that. Not everybody likes you, and that 's okay that 's normal, but your reaction to them is what matters and then we back we fall back on God because God has your back he does doesn 't always look like it in the immediate, as we read even in psalms. they felt like God rejects sometimes you feel like that, but God has your back. He will sort it out you know uh Guys, if you want to come and prepare my favorite song, I remember uh, a, a while ago I was struggling with uh, with a need for vindication. I had felt falsely accused. I felt misunderstood, and uh, it was just it was rough. And um, I and I, I wanted in the worst way to be vindicated. I wanted in the worst way for somebody to come and say, oh, Doug, you're right, they're wrong. Doesn't that feel good? Yeah, my flesh likes that. You're right, they're wrong. And I'm praying. I remember one day I was praying, and I was just, uh, well, hey, listen, I'm glad that you don't record my prayers because sometimes they're ugly. And I was laying this out before the Lord. And... I heard the gentle words of Jesus as I prayed. And Jesus just said this He said, he said uh, I'm waiting to be vindicated too. And I thought, really? Yeah. People are speaking all kinds of terrible, awful things against Jesus. And they always have for the last 2,000 years. People say all kinds of nastiness, do all kinds of nastiness against the person of Jesus Christ. What did he ever do for anybody? Has he died for you? Why do people oppose him? Why do people undermine him? Why Why do people hate on him so much? Right? But yet the Bible tells us that the day is going to come. Check this out. Every knee bows. Every tongue confesses, Jesus, you are who you say you are. You are the master of the universe. You are God. You are the Lord. I was wrong. You, Jesus, are the only one who's right. Every knee bows. Every tongue will confess. But you understand that Jesus, that that has not happened yet. Do you see that? That has not happened yet. That will happen, but until that day, Jesus is waiting to be vindicated. Now, if that's where Jesus is at, and if he's resting simply right now, he's resting in the vindication of his Father. That's what he's doing. He knows his Father loves him. He knows that. He knows who he is. Jesus knows that. He doesn't need you to tell him he's God. He already knows he's God. He's resting in who He is. He's resting in the love that His Father has for Him. And the day of His vindication, it will come. If that's Jesus, and He's perfect, then how much more can a bonehead like me just sit tight and let the Lord sort it all out? Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. I don't, that's, how I comforted, that's how I got comfort that day in prayer. I'm so thankful that the Lord showed me that. And I just wait and I rest. And there's something about that that identifies me even with Jesus. I find my heart, you know, in all those little ways. And I can go back in my whole life, and I know you can too. Back in your whole life, and you find things that were said or done against you, and and you just wanted so badly to get vindication for it, and, and you haven't yet. Every one of us has stuff like that. You know, can you see how... That in your life can actually be a way to draw you closer to Christ, identifying you with him even more. Man, I'm walking with Jesus. right? And that's how that's how that, do you see that? And maybe that's part of the reason why we go through junk like that, maybe, Just so that, We've got another reason to be intimately connected with our Savior. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.